0: And I'm Karina Gantis, and you are watching or listening to another episode of Behind the Pen with a special episode today. I have a co-host with me, Wesley Britton. Hello there, Wesley.
1: Hello,
2: Corina. Hello, Mark. Hello, all the ships at sea.
0: <laughs> Wesley Britton is the author of the amazing Beta Earth Chronicles. It's very unique take on site science fiction. You need to go out and take a look at that. He's also a book reviewer since the early 80s. So he's going to be chatting with my special guest, Mark Cushman, about his books a little bit later on. So uh, I'd like to introduce now my special guest, Mark Cushman. Welcome to the show, Mark.
1: Hi, Karina. Hi, Wes. Hey.
0: So what I normally do is, is because I don't have this show scripted, I start right from the beginning, like, uh, what were you like as a child? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But the first thing I have to ask you is, with the promotional picture that's going around that I'm sharing, you're holding a very beautiful trophy called the Satin Award. Can you explain to our listeners and our viewers what this award is and how you won it?
1: Well, the the Saturn Award is the Academy of Science Fiction, Horror, and Fantasy, or maybe it's Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. It's one of those. And they've been around since the early 80s. As a matter of fact, I think their first uh, award show was 1980 uh, or 79 or somewhere around there. And uh, they give awards out for best films, best TV productions, series uh, that are in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genres. And they don't usually give awards out for books but they've made a couple exceptions over the decades, and I was one of them, and they gave me that award in 2014 for the first two volumes of These are the Voyages, Star Trek, the original series. It's a three-book set, that's three, and um, uh, one for each season of the original uh, TV series, and of course, it was going to be one book, but uh, Gene Roddenberry, who created and produced Star Trek, and Bob Justman, his co-producer, and Dorothy Fontana, their script editor, and all these people, John D.F. Black, the associate producer, they all, besides giving me interviews, gave me so many tons and tons of Research, memos yeah. and scripts and treatments yeah. and even, even scripts for episodes that didn't get made uh, yeah. because of budget concerns or censorship concerns. And so I had so much material, it was impossible to, to contain it to one volume. So we decided to go with one volume for each season of the original show with each episode getting a chapter and you get to read the memos that they were writing to each other as they were developing the script, as they were fighting with NBC, as they were trying to figure out how are we going to film this thing, this giant space battle, you know, out there, how are we going to do that on our budget? And so you get to really go behind the scenes and find out everything they were dealing with to make those 79 episodes and about a dozen others that didn't get made for the reasons I mentioned earlier. And you get to see the fights between NBC and so forth. We also licensed the Nielsen ratings for every episode and it kind of disproved uh, 50 years of folklore that said Star Trek didn't perform well on NBC. And that's the reason it was canceled. Uh, It was actually NBC's top rated Thursday night show when it was on Thursday nights. They moved it to Friday. It was their top-rated Friday night show. It came down in the ratings quite a bit because Friday was not a good night for Star Trek. Mm. It had a big audience of teenagers and college students, and they're not home watching TV on Friday nights. And this is back before you could DVR things, right? Yeah. And and so the ratings came down, but it was still their top-rated show of that night. So why would you try to cancel your top-rated show? And the answer is that we find out by reading all the memos and the fights between Roddenberry and the network, was that the stories were too controversial for that time period on American TV. No. And they couldn't get Gene to back off on these themes and these stories he was telling. And uh, it, it turned into a bad relationship between him and the network. And as Wes can tell you, nothing's going to get a show canceled quicker than when the guy who runs the show has a bad relationship with the network.
0: I say Star Trek was controversial, but they definitely... Um, the topics that they talked about were so humane about, you know, humans, friendship, love, um, the universe trying to right. uh, come together as one, you know? It's, yeah. I mean, what were these well, and, and controversial Well, and love is not a things? problem.
1: <laughs> but, but remember, this is the late 1960s.
0: Yeah.
1: Back then in America, uh, a nighttime entertainment show... Was not supposed to talk about hot topics. The, the network said that belongs on the news with the news division, mm-hmm. commentary and news shows, not not an entertainment show. And yet Roddenberry was doing stories that commented on Vietnam, which was happening at that moment. Mm-hmm. He did stories about overpopulation. He did stories about sexism, stories about racism, uh, stories about religion. And all these were not really subjects that the networks wanted uh, uh, an entertainment show to be talking about. Uh, and if you think back to some of the episodes, um, if, if you've watched that original oh, series, yeah. Most definitely. Um, I'll, I'll mention just one as an example. It was called The Enemy Within from early in the first season where Captain Kirk is, is divided into two by a transporter malfunction.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. And one yeah, half sir. of
1: him is the intellectual half, and the other half is the primal
0: yes. half.
1: And the primal half actually tries to rape his yeoman, Yeoman yes. Janice Rand, who was a regular on the show during that time. Yeah. And he has her pinned to the floor, and he's trying to rape her, and she scratches his face and runs out and everything else. And uh, and NBC had a big problem with the script. Um which was written by Richard Matheson and a renowned science fiction author. And, and Roddenberry wrote back and said, no, 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 he's not raping her. He's just being a little forward and everything yeah. else, but, but it's, it's going to be okay. Then they saw the episode, and it's definitely an attempted rape, very violent. Uh, and, it was, and Star Trek was behind on its deliveries. So if they didn't deliver, get it on the air, they were going to miss one of their air dates. Yeah. So NBC accepted it. Well, the first half hour... It's, it's winning its time slot in the ratings. And as soon as that attempted rape took place, it dropped to number three behind CBS and ABC. And NBC uh, informed Roddenberry afterwards to never do that to us again. Well, he didn't quite do that to them again, but he did many things yeah. that, that they had problems with. So that's why they kept moving it to worse time slots and eventually pulled the plug on it. Pulled the plug, uh, the yeah. ratings did get... Not very good in the third year when it was in the death slot at 10 p.m. But the first episode, Spock's Brain, not a great episode, but that was the leadoff show that they wanted, beat the other two networks. Uh, And what was on the other two networks during that time period was Judd for the Defense on ABC, which had just won an Emmy as Best Dramatic Series on television the previous year, and the premiere of Hawaii Five-0, which had a 12-year run on CBS, and yet, Spock's brain beat them both. So you know, it's, it's saying it was just about the ratings is not yeah, true.
0: Exactly. And and
1: by us licensing all the Nielsen reports, it backs that uh, that statement. So
0: um, because Star Trek got stopped and uh, they dumped the show, and yet there's been how many other different Star Trek generations, new generations, going on and on and on now up to. We are 2020, and it's still going. Why did they start it up again? What? What Was it a different director, a different scriptwriter? What happened?
1: Well, this new three-book series that I have out, uh, These uh, Are Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, explores that very question. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and the reason it's a three-book series is because, again, I had so much information available to me and it took 10 years for star trek to come back uh, during that decade and yet you see the show becoming more and more popular mm. uh, it's being syndicated around the world in the u.s it's on almost 200 stations it's beating the network competition uh, and and uh paramount which owned the show uh and nbc which had canceled the show are both saying hey maybe we should get this back on Well, why did it take 10 years? And that's what these books take us through. And you see all the, again, battles between Gene Roddenberry and them trying to bring the show back, but to bring it back properly with good integrity. And these books cover his other projects from that period, his other science fiction pilots, uh, Star Trek, the animated series, the aborted phase two series, Star Trek motion picture. And uh, Wes is currently reading these giant books and will be reviewing them for us. And he'll tell us whether they're too much or not um but i think to the real they don't want a simple answer they they want to because they were suffering in the 1970s waiting for the show to come back yeah and i can tell you and i was in my late teens and early 20s during that period everybody i knew was watching star trek Uh and and the conventions are happening and they're getting bigger and bigger and the merchandising and everything else and we were all going why don't they make more Star Treks and yeah. these books take you through the the battlefield and the painful process of what it took to bring that show back which I can elaborate later if you want but we'll just leave it there
0: yeah
1: um, but but it came back to answer your question because one the popularity kept increasing there was demand for it and um, uh, and finally the entire cast from the original series was available they weren't all along because Leonard Nimoy signed on to Mission Impossible for a couple years and everybody was busy doing things and and Paramount didn't know if they wanted to bring it back as a movie or a new tv show or a series of movies so it goes through that entire process of what happened and they finally did bring it back as the animated series and the reason that happened was because the cast wasn't available not all the cast members were available to come in and do a regular series but they could do the animated series because they could record their parts the voice, yeah. from wherever they were around the country.
0: Yeah.
1: So so NBC put that on. And then they did the movie. And that was one of the biggest box office successes of 79 and 80.
0: Which movie? And so that
1: started the series of movies. Uh, and then we got Next Generation in 86. And then we got... Um, Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Enterprise. And now you've got, I think, three different series running simultaneously on uh, CBS streaming. Uh, So it's it's had children and it's become the most successful franchise in the history of television.
0: And if it wasn't for the original cast, the original show, the cult classic, if it wasn't for that, there wouldn't be as many and the franchise and the merchandise. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I didn't see anything controversial about it. I mean, okay, I wasn't in the 60s watching it at the time. But um, if it was as bad as they said it was, then it wouldn't have been uh, as cult classic like it is well, now. Well, the
1: original series featured the first interracial kiss. Mm. And that sounds like nothing now. But when that exactly. episode aired in 1968... That was a huge, huge deal to where the NBC censors actually came to the set oh, gosh. to insisting that William Shatner and Nichelle Nichols not touch their lips. They said kiss her on the cheek and, and a big fight ensued on the set and it stopped production for a couple hours. And Roddenberry came down to the set and he said, look, and they could not come to terms with the network. So he said, let us shoot it both ways. One time they'll kiss on the lips, the other time they'll kiss on the cheek, and we'll argue about it later when we're editing the episode.
0: Let's just get it fixed. Well, that
1: was the plan. But William Shatner and Neshana Nichols were very upset that the network was saying you can't kiss. And they said, this is supposed to be 250 years from now, and you're saying a white man and a black woman can't kiss? (laughs) And so the cameras were set up, or the camera was set up. uh, they, They did a master shot where you couldn't tell if the lips touched or not. And then they did a close up on, on Shatner and one take he kisses her on the lips. And then they did the second take for the network and he kisses her on the cheek. But when they got into editing and they looked at that take, Shatner looked at the camera and crossed his eyes. He purposely made it he purposely made it unusable. And so, NBC, unless they wanted to bring the cast out and rebuild those sets and everything on that planet, they had to go with the, with the, the version. And they did and they got some hostile letters, but they mostly got positive letters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it became a triumph. And from that point on, interracial kissing was allowed on TV.
0: Because of Star Trek.
1: Yeah. And NBC was worried about the Southern affiliates. They were worried uh-huh. about the affiliates in Alabama. And Georgia and places like that, they they knew most of the country would not have a problem with it, but in the deep but south, the
0: south they, they, they said racing. this
1: could really become a big big problem for us. Yeah. So that's when we say controversial. Yeah, you got to look at it in its time.
0: I've heard a few things about Shatner on on set. He was um, he, he really got his word out, didn't he? He made sure he, he what he wanted done was done. He's a uh, is it Captain Kirk well, he, and he was the captain
1: of he was the, the ship. captain? He was the captain and, and the I captain interviewed of
0: the ship,
1: yeah. You know, I interviewed the cast members and the behind the scenes people, the uh, the production crew and the writers and directors and producers, and one thing everybody told me is that Shatner was the captain. Yeah. I mean, not just in the show, but he was the captain on the set. And and he was good natured, he was funny, he was warm. He was energetic. Everybody, almost everybody loved him. He would welcome them to the set. He was just terrific. He was funny. Between takes, he would make them laugh. But the minute the camera rolled, he was in character. He knew all of his lines, he knew all their lines, yeah. and everything else. Uh, but uh, about 10% would have issues with him where they said it seemed he was too controlling. Just <laughs> who does he think he is? Well, he's the star of the show. He's the star- but. He was a writer and he became a writer and a director and he had those talents and he brought all that with him to the set. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. It wasn't just, uh, him being an actor. He knew what he was talking about and he made sure that, uh, people knew that, uh, he, he wasn't just, um, in a Well,
1: of- one, one guy I interviewed and he was only in one show, John Crawford. He was a pretty big guest star in those days and, uh, had been an actor for many, many years and, uh, uh, he was in an episode called Court Martial. And John was really uh, unhappy with Shatner because all of his scenes were on the bridge. And he would come in onto the bridge and he was a commissioner who was fighting with Kirk over what, where the ship was supposed to go and what it was supposed to do. And uh, so there's conflict between the two characters. But, but he said Shatner was so unpleasant. And, and it was like, well, what do you mean by that? Everybody else said he was great. And he said, no, you know, I came onto the set and I'm walking around the bridge and saying my lines and Shatner's saying, you can't walk on the bridge. You've got to stand there and do your lines. And John Crawford thought, what, an, what a controlling, obnoxious human being this man is. Well, he didn't know that everybody had gotten memos from Gene Roddenberry saying, don't walk on the bridge when you're saying your dialogue, because the bridge was eight wedges that came together like a pie. And was buckled together, but they would could pull a wedge out to put the camera here and then put it back in and pull another wedge out to put the camera over here. And when you walked, it was a little bit of squeaking. And if you're doing doing your lines at the same time that there's a squeaking, there's no way they can clean it up. So you can walk. Or you could talk, but don't walk and talk. Yeah. So Shatner was just saying you can't walk and talk at the same time. John Crawford didn't know that that was the directive coming from Roddenberry. He thought Shatner was just being controlling. So the few in, people I talked to who didn't like him, usually they didn't understand what, the, what the parameters of this show and and wh- how it had to be filmed.
0: Mm. Let me let me ask you now. What was it for you that got you glued and passionate about Star Trek?
1: Well, this goes back to your your initial question, which uh, we we didn't answer, but I will now. (laughs) Um, You said, how did I get started? Or how was I as a kid or whatever? Um, I was born to be a writer. Uh, My mother would tell me that even when I was five, I would draw pictures and she'd come over and say, what's that? And I wouldn't just tell her what the picture was like a witch on a broom. I would tell her what had happened before the picture and what was happening after the whole story. And, uh, and she didn't duct tape me. So I guess I must've been entertaining to her, but, uh, she said, I knew from that point you were going to be a writer. Well, when Star Trek premiered in 1966, I was maybe nine or 10. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I've been watching Voice Bomb the Sea and Lost in Space and Wild Bob West, which were fun, fun shows. But I watched Star Trek, and it was something more. It was not only every bit as fun as those shows, but it, after I finished watching the episode, I found myself thinking about it. And it's all those themes that Roddenberry would put into the scripts. I didn't know what a theme was back then, but I was thinking about it. And that show, more than any other, made me want to become a television writer because I wanted to get other people to think about things. I wanted to entertain them, but also uh, get them thinking. Uh, and as I got older, I had things that I wanted them to think about. So um, that's what inspired me to start start writing for Star Trek. And then I met Gene Roddenberry in the early 80s. Uh, I was working for a production company in LA. I was very young, but I was like an apprentice writer. And they were going to do a special for local Los Angeles TV on Star Trek. Uh, The first movie was out. They were about to release Wrath The TV show was as popular as ever, if not more so. So they wanted to do an hour-long little kind of special on it. And uh, Bill Akema was the guy who ran that company. And he said, who knows something about Star Trek? And I said, I I do. I've seen every episode.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And he said, oh, well, then you go down to Paramount and interview Gene Roddenberry. I was like after he picked me up off the floor
0: yeah. and and oh I and I,
1: cha- and I changed my my pants uh, <laughs> I went down to Paramount and interviewed Gene for the first time and um for this this uh, special and I told him I said you know a book that really inspired me when 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 I was 16 and getting serious about wanting to start writing sample scripts and learning how to write TV scripts was a book that you did with Stephen Whitfield called The Making of Star Trek, which was written while Star Trek was still being made. But it talked about how Roddenberry created the show and sold it to NBC and so forth, and made the pilots and, and all that. And I said, I would love to read something like that on every episode. Did you save all the memos? Because they printed memos in that book. I did, did you save all that stuff from all the other episodes too? He says, yeah, we got like 45 boxes a production reports budgets memos wow. fan letters everything and and I said that would make a great book and he says well let me know when you're ready to start writing it
2: wow. <laughs> and I think
1: he I think he was joking uh, but I came back to him uh, eventually and said I want to do this and he said okay here's the stuff you go know, on
0: that, Let's took about how
1: and it's, and it's so connected. and and I pitched um uh, when next generation came on I I sent him a letter and I said, congratulations, uh, can I come in and pitch a story? And he said, of course. And so I went down to Paramount and I pitched uh, uh, Sarak to him, which was an episode of uh, Next Generation. And um, so Gene Jean, Jean really was very good to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, wow, that is just like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's fate. It was fate for that Person to just shout it, out. It anybody way? know anybody know anything about Star
1: Trek? And you were like, "I know, yeah." yeah! I know. And then I later went on to write for Star Trek Continues and so forth. But wow. uh, and and just a sidebar on that story. The other show besides Star Trek that made me want to become a TV writer was the Dick Van Dyke Show. Now it's nothing like Star Trek, no. but if you've ever seen the Dick Van Dyke Show from the nineteen yeah. sixties, he was a TV writer. Yeah. And he worked uh, for the Alan Brady Show, and he worked with uh, Buddy and Sally, and they came up with comedy skits, and and you got to see them cracking each other up and coming up with these comedy skits for the episode they were writing for that that week's show. And he was married to Mary Tyler Moore.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, and so you know, at, at ten years old, I'm watching that show, and Wes, you you can predict what I'm about to say, I guess, being a guy. <laughs> uh, but I got I know I was looking at that would be a fun job to have. <laughs> but I want to be married to Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> so the sidebar to this is not only did Star Trek inspire me, and then I, got, I ended up being able to work for Star Trek and write about Star Trek, awesome. but Dick Van Dyke inspired me, and then I went on to write uh, for his TV series Diagnosis Murder. There you go. And I was on the set one day, and he was there, of course, and I was watching them, fil- them film an episode that I had written, co-written with a wonderful collaborator of mine named Melody Fox. And um, we're both there. And they had to do a um, a lighting tweak. And the lighting crew will always say, five minutes, we got to tweak the lights, because they watched everybody walk around and rehearse the scene. And okay, we got to tweak the lights now to follow that action. And if you know anything about TV production, five minutes usually means 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and he didn't go to his trailer. He stayed there on the set. And he entertained the day workers, all the extras and the crew, by doing Chim Chimney from Mary <laughs> Poppins. From Mary he picked, Poppins. picked up something. It wasn't an umbrella, but he picked up something about the size of an umbrella because that's oh what he used my to, gosh. to do. And he did the whole song and dance number while oh we were waiting. And God. I thought, what a great guy. What at towards the end of the day, or before we left, I think during lunch, we were, we were going to leave, but uh, he came over and, and said, this is a really good script. Uh, I understand you two wrote it. That's, that's terrific. And I re- really like it. And I said, well, thank yourself. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you inspired me to be a TV writer. I didn't tell him you and Gene Roddenberry, but I said you. <laughs> and I was surprised he didn't know what I meant. And I said you played a TV writer on TV and he said oh, okay. oh wow he wasn't sure because he had never written anything until he did his biography his autobiography but uh he didn't know what I meant by that but uh, so yeah it's wow. it's sometimes it's it comes around and it can, it can feel like fate
0: that was, that was amazing absolutely amazing story
1: everyone here comes West Britain after 40
2: minutes <laughs> which means my portion isn't going to be all that long <laughs> off with, Mark, is that I have now read nine of your books, and this one that we're talking about today is book number 10, and I think a lot of people should know that you're not just a man of Star Trek. The first book I reviewed of yours was on I Spy, Mm -hmm. one wonderful book on the Moody Blues, long overdue. You have three on Lost in Space, and you got one on Voyage to the Bottom of the
1: Sea, and every one are marked by your tendency for TMI. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. The second Voice Promises, which concludes that series, is done. It's off at the printers, and it'll be out in September. Uh And I worked on volume two of Moody Blues. The first volume covered, I mean, it's a 50-year career. Yeah. So The first volume covered the 60s and 70s, and the book I'm doing now starts in 1980 and goes right up to their induction in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame from 2018. So I I divided their career in in two, which was easy to do because they kind of changed their sound a little bit Uh with the dawning of 1980. Mike Pinder, the Mellotron man left and Patrick Morez of Yes came in to take his place. So it kind of updated their sound. So that was a perfect place to pause the story and pick it up for volume two.
2: I look forward to that because I really enjoyed the first one. A one thing about your books, is i got to say, they, when they come out, they always seem like they are overdue. They are the yeah. books people have been waiting for, especially the Star Trek books, because you reveal so much, and you'd think it'd all be common knowledge by now, but it isn't. How do you manage to keep all of that detail straight? You keep talking about all the material
1: they left for you. You don't have any help from research assistants or anything when you put no. together? No, I do it all myself. I mean, I, I, my publisher has given me help a couple times when I couldn't go down to the Roddenberry Vault or UCLA or Margaret her, um, Heritage, Heritage uh, Museum, I probably messed up her last name, in Beverly Hills. Um, so sometimes a, a production assistant will go down and do some of the research with a, with a wish list from me and send things back. But 99% of it I do myself. And when I finish a book, Wes, it's it's like next to my desk I have piles and piles of uh. stuff, and and I'm doing Moody Blues Volume Two right now, and <laughs> oh, God. this is just this is just one of four stacks of that size.
0: What's that and research I, on? I
1: printed from newspaper archives and uh billboard and cash box magazine and things like that. And, and I plug it all in. Uh, it's, it ta- it takes over your brain, oh, and you know, from writing and from reading my stuff, you can imagine for me, because there's so much in there. Uh, I don't want to hold things back. I want to, whatever I find, I want to share with the fans. I don't write for the casual fan. I write for the serious fan. Uh-huh. And, uh, so it's it's uh, it's a lot of stuff, and and usually the books will be about a thousand pages, and then we start editing and squeezing it down to mm-hmm. six hundred or seven hundred pages. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the the first drafts are usually about a thousand, so they're big, big books. Yes, uh, but are. it's a lot of information, and um, and the only way I I keep from getting lost is by printing everything out and putting it in chronological order. So it's all there. So I can just dig through and go for that specific date range and look for those articles and reviews and uh, interviews and, and things of that nature. And we start to write the memos and the production reports and on and on and on. It's a lot, it's a lot of work. And uh, that's why I'm divorced.
0: <laughs>
1: no woman could stand to be with me because uh, they were always jealous of my work. And they would always say, it's like you have a mistress. You know, you're, uh, you know, we, I wait for you to come out of your office in the house. I wait, yeah. I wait for you to come out so we can spend some time together. Because yeah. um, I'll, I'll work 12 hours a day, seven days a week if, if I'm allowed to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that doesn't make me the best uh, companion, but it makes me a good researcher. Yeah. And for people, <laughs> when they see that I'm doing a book on, on a certain subject, if they're into that subject, they know they're going to get it. Okay. Uh, and, and then some. Why did you start with I spine? Well, I I was very busy writing and directing, uh, writing scripts and directing. And uh, so when Roddenberry invited me to do those Star Trek books, it took me a long time to get around to them. And by then I had amassed so much information that it, it was overwhelming to me. I thought, how am I gonna put all this in a book? It's too much because they kept memos on everything and uh, and so many articles and so much information from that time period. Um, so I thought I got to start with something a little easier. And uh, I was at a, a party and I was talking to a, a writer named Linda LaRosa who had written a couple novels. And we got chatting uh, about I Spy for some reason. And I said I love that show and she said I loved it too and we're talking about it. And talking about how what a unique show it was, uh, that it was the first show on, in America. Karina, we were talking earlier about how Star Trek was controversial. Well, iSpy premiered on NBC one year before Star Trek. And it was the first show that put a white and a black actor together wow. in America. Wow. Uh, on equal status. And the first show, the first instance of a black actor winning an Emmy as best lead in a, in a dramatic show. Uh, but it also invent, invented the buddy genre, and, uh, and it filmed around the world and invented the technology that was needed or brought in the technology that was needed to do that, like little AirFlex cameras instead of the big motion picture cameras, uh, quartz light kits instead of the giant arc lights, wireless microphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used a flying tiger. They built a thing called a mobile that had all that stuff in it and a platform on top that could hydraulically be raised. Uh, camera platform and they would drive that cinemobile into a flying tiger from the World War II that they they bought and they would fly that to Greece where they filmed many episodes and they flew that They came out to see you, Karina, (laughs) but you haven't been born yet They flew it to Greece and they flew it to Hong Kong and they flew it to Spain and they flew Italy And they would film episodes which no show had ever done before So we wanted to write a book about that nobody had Oh, kind of yeah. like Moody Blues. I was shocked to see nobody had written a book about the Moody Blues. I was shocked to see nobody had written a book about I Spy. It opened so many doors just from niche. civil rights yeah. aspect. And so Linda and I thought we got to do this. And uh, and I contacted Robert Culp through his agent, and he graciously met with us and had a wonderful lunch. And he had Cobb salad, and uh, turned me on to Cobb salad, which I've been a fan of ever since. And <laughs> We ended up going to his house, I think, seven, eight different times to interview him and many, many phone calls. He connected us with Bill Cosby and and just on and on and on. And I got access to the show files. So we did that book, uh, Wes, and that was 2007. And that showed me how to do the Star Trek books. I was wondering, that's exactly why
2: I asked the question. Yeah, I
1: I didn't know how to approach it. I, I had so much information and I just didn't know how to do it. Well, working with Linda, I mean, she had never done a nonfiction book, but because she was a published author, working together, we kind of invented the template of how we wanted to do these, which goes episode by episode because it's like watching a life uh, uh, span. Mm. Uh, it's a biography of a TV show. And each mm. episode affects everything that's going to be filmed from that point on, especially with ISPY where you're traveling around the world. Mm. and with Star Trek where you're inventing it as you go along so we treat each episode as as almost a year in the life of that child that's growing and uh and that was the template and so once we did that and got good reviews from Wes and and others uh then I knew I knew how to approach Star Trek and I went into that and then after that um, I, I talked to Kevin Burns, who is the guy who controls all the Irwin Allen properties. And he was interested in me doing books on some of Irwin Allen's shows. And I wanted to do Voyage to Bomb the Sea and Lost in Space because those two shows came on before Star Trek. And if it wasn't for them, there would not have been a Star Trek because the networks didn't believe you could do a show like that. They said, you can't do half a science fiction movie a week on a TV budget and on a TV schedule and deliver these in time. So we're not standing there with nothing to put on the air. And Irwin Allen proved that you could do it. And he proved that there was a big enough audience out there mm-hmm. to support shows like that. His shows were winning their time slots. And that's what got NBC to say, let's do Star Trek. So, uh, so I wanted to do those books. Moody Blues, um, I, I had to go on a book signing tour and I was driving myself. Up to, up to Northern California and some other places. And when I take long drives like that West, and I love taking long drives, uh, and if I'm by myself, which I was, uh, I'll take music to play. Because a lot of times you can't pick up radio stations in various areas or even satellite. And so, uh, you know, I, I used to work in radio. So I have these massive collections of music that I'd gotten from these radio stations. And I'll usually take a certain group I'll say, I'm, I'm going to listen to the Beatles and I'll start with their first album and go through you know, all 16 of their albums on this long drive back and forth. And I love doing that, going through the history of a band as I'm driving. I hadn't listened to Moody Blues in a long time, but I've been hearing a couple of their songs on the radio and thought, gee, it'd be fun to listen to Days of Future Past again and some of these albums. So I grabbed those 15, 16 albums that they did and, uh, and started on my, my journey, and put in Days of the Future Past, and then put in in Search of the Lost Chord, and then on the threshold of a dream, and on and on. And by the time I got up to the first stop, which was uh, San Jose, Cupertino, which was about a five, six hour drive, I had to read a book. You know, I'm in hotel rooms, I brought a couple books to read at night, to put myself to sleep. But I wanted to read about the Moody Blues, and so I went on to Amazon, And there was no book. I said, how is this possible? This band's been together almost 50 years. They invented the genre of symphonic rock. They invented the concept album. They've had hits spanning four different decades, an immensely popular band. How is it nobody's ever written a book on them? So when I got back from that trip, I called my publisher on another matter. We were talking about, I guess, how the trip went. And I was talking to Stephen Cates, who's the director of operations. You've talked to him, I think. Uh, you two have talked to him, but, uh, or emailed with him. Anyway, and I said, he said, how was your trip? And I said, great, I listened to Moody Blues on the entire drive. And he said, oh, one of my favorite bands. Oh, wow. I said, really? <laughs> and I had just gotten off the phone with Sandra Burles, who was the project coordinator at Jacobs Jacob Brown, and I said the same thing. She said, how was your trip? I said, I listened to Moody Blues. She said, I love the Moody Blues. I married my husband, Andy, because he looks like Justin Hayward. <laughs> <laughs> no other reason. <laughs> and, uh, and so the two people I talked to from Jacobs Brown immediately said, oh, my favorite all-time group. And I said, did you know nobody's ever written a book on Moody Blues and they're coming up on their 50th anniversary and they're going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they're about to begin a tour of England and then come over to America doing the entire Days of Future Past album with local orchestras. Wow. for the 50th anniversary, and then get inducted uh, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and, and he says, you're kidding. Nobody's ever done a book. Why don't you write one? You yeah, of course. of course. So, Wes, I started printing out all the articles and all the uh, historical stuff and contact, reaching out to the band to interview people and all that stuff. I, I wrote that book in six months, that 800-page book I wrote in wow. six months. And I wrote volume two as well, the first draft of volume two. In six months.
0: When when you contacted the band, what did they say when you said, "I look, no one's done it before. I want to write a book about you, about your music, I, about your, your." A
1: couple of them didn't want to be interviewed. Justin Hay- Hayward said he never wanted there to be a book on the Moody Blues. Wow. Well, because you know most rock biographies are are vicious. Come on. Uh, I lo- I love reading nonfiction. And, and I'll pick up a book on Elton John or somebody like that. And it's like the author hates him. I read a book on John Lennon. It's like the author hates him. And it's like all they want to do is tear the guy down and look under his bed, you know? And, uh, and so I wasn't surprised when Justin's response was, uh, you know, I never really wanted there to be a book on the Moody Blues. And I'm not going to push anybody. I'm yeah. not going to harass them or stalk them. You know, he politely declined, and John Lodge politely declined. But Graham Edge said, sure, and and Patrick um, uh, Merez said, sure, and Mike Pinder and Ray Thomas. I actually got the last interview Ray Thomas ever gave because he passed away a couple months after, uh, unexpectedly, um, passed away a couple months after I interviewed him, just a couple months before they went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. But we had to have that book out in time to coincide with the tour and and that them them going in there, the ceremony. And so I had to write that thing in six months, uh, that and the second book, because I wanted to write them both. You got to get to the end of the story before you start doing your rewrite. So I had to Uh, do two Wes, and then I went back and did the rewrite of volume one. Uh, And it's a little bigger than I'd like it to be, which the fans love, you know, they're not saying it's too big. Um, If, if if I ever get to do a revised version, I'm going to trim down some of the reviews from the 1960s and 70s. Because when an album comes out, we have a chapter on the album, Karina, which ta- you hear all the Moody Blues talking. Because even the ones I did interview, I used archival interviews. So mm-hmm. they're all talking about the inspiration for the songs and making the album and everything. And then I'll, I'll find reviews online. Not new reviews. Reviews from... 1968, 69, back then, to see how the world accepted this album Mm. in that moment. And then they come over and they're going on tour and I'll find reviews following them on tour Mm
0: -hmm.
1: to let those those reviewers take us into the arena and experience this history being made. Well, I got very uh, enamored in this because I love reading archival stuff. I love reading reviews from the time when yeah. it was brand new, and uh, and and we were in such a hurry to get the book out, that it was eight hundred pages. And I thought, well, you know, if I could put it aside for a couple months, and go back into it with fresh eyes, I could probably tighten some of this. Mm-hmm. And say we don't need that review. It's kind of saying what this other guy said, you know. Uh, but we didn't have the time, so it was an eight hundred. I think about eight hundred and fifty page wow. book, hardback. How, how did did you hurt yourself lifting it up, Wes? <laughs> I read it electronically, so I didn't and, uh, have to uh, but all are dense and you and are the books that I've
2: been waiting for, for all these different subjects. You know, we ought to ask a couple questions about the book we gathered here to talk about today. Okay. What surprised you most when you looked at the history of Star Trek in the 70s?
1: Well, I, in the 1970s, I was a fan of Star Trek. I mean, mm-hmm. not to where I was going to conventions or anything. Uh, I I never went to a conventional in many ways and entertaining uh, and all that Um, and I couldn't understand why it got canceled because everybody I knew was watching it and I couldn't understand why they were putting it back into production and making new episodes because everybody I knew was watching it. Uh, I mean everywhere and it was on in every city across the country five nights a week and Apparently, doing very well, and and the conventions were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the merchandising was exploding. And I thought, how is it possible that that this is not on TV? You know, when NBC that canceled it is putting on shows like Chips, you know, and Dukes of Hazard, and and unwatchable television from the. Come on, Dukes
0: of Hazard! Come on.
1: (laughs) I watched an episode or two because those girls were really cute. They wore hot.
2: That's about the, the eye candy. That was about it.
1: And, and on Chips, Eric Estrada was really cute and he wore very tight uniforms. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, 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 Cy, Cy uh who produced that show, told uh, Stephen Cates, so Jacob Brown and Stephen Cates told me uh, that that when they shot the pilot for, for Chips, so I was watching it in the screening room and he was saying, do you guys see what I see? And nobody's reacting. He says, bring wardrobe in here. And they come in and he says, do you see what I see? And nobody's reacting. And so he says, Eric's wearing baggy clothes. He's got a great body, put him in tight clothes. And so they tightened up his uniform and boom, the ratings were shot through the ceiling. But that was the mindset of the 1970s was tight clothes and, and disco. And, uh, and I'm, I'm going, where's Star Trek? So, Wes, this was going to be one book, and, but then, you know, when I started interviewing everybody and started going through the Roddenberry Vault and coming out with truckloads of memos and all the efforts uh, to make Star Trek, to bring it back, and the scripts. That one they thing have, I was going to say is
2: my favorite part of the book is when you reveal the scripts and the storylines that were never produced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trucks we never saw. I, that, that's one of my favorite parts.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if you're deep enough into the, the new book yet, but you'll be reading about the the movie scripts that were written that they didn't produce, uh-huh. and so, and the aborted TV show, which I have all sixteen episodes in there. Uh, I don't put in the full scripts, of course, but but I I tell you what the stories were and put in excerpts, and uh, of all the stuff that they were on the verge of making but didn't make, um, until finally. That's took the, fun stuff. They took the two hour premiere episode script for the aborted phase two series. And they used it as the script for star Trek, the motion picture, which is in volume three of that three book set with volume one covers the animated series volume two covers the aborted phase two series volume three covers the motion picture, but they're all interlinked because you see the popularity rising and, uh, and, and understand why star Trek had to come back but you see all the obstacles that they had to face to bring it back.
2: One of the things that surprised me is I'd always accepted the truism that it was the success of Star Wars that inspired Paramount to make Star Trek. Yeah. It was actually the other way around.
1: There's so much folklore out there. And we were talking earlier about the ratings, Karina, about you know, the folklore that said it did terrible on NBC, and you find out it did okay, yeah. you know? Um, uh, until towards the very end uh, when they hid it away in a bad time slot. But um, uh, the, the uh, Star Wars came out in 76. Summer, I think. summer of 76, I believe. Uh, and they were already involved in trying to make a Star Trek movie, but they, Paramount could not find a script that they felt was big enough, epic okay. enough to justify it. Because they knew the longer they waited, the higher the expectations were, not only from the fans, but from the press. And so if they had done a movie pretty early on, it wouldn't have been such a big deal. But by the time you got into the 1975 and 76, it's like, this has to be incredible or, or w- why should we make it? So then they decided to do the TV show uh, and they ordered 16 scripts and they built the sets and they signed the cast up and they were supposed to start filming. And the rumor came out that because Star Wars made a big, such a big hit uh, in the movie houses that they decided to not do the TV show and take that first episode and make it into a movie. That's not true. The, the truth is that uh, Paramount was having trouble launching a fourth network. NBC wanted the series. So the other two networks. Paramount didn't want to give them a series. They wanted to keep it for themselves. But they were having trouble putting together all the elements they needed to get a fourth network launched. In the meantime, they built the sets. They had the cast under contract. They had this two hour opening episode called In Thy Image Written. And they said, you know what, let's, let's get it, start shooting that. And we'll put it out as a movie and then we'll come do the TV show. And the movie was such a huge success mm. that the decision was not to do the TV show, but to just keep making movies. Okay, well, I get, well, there's only one logical place to end, I suppose. When is Book Three coming out? It's very soon, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's actually available right now. Ah. Uh, I know my publisher wants to send you a copy as soon as you get caught up, yep. and uh, uh, and and you'll you'll have the first chance to do a review. Uh, but it's available right now through the publisher if you buy direct through Jacobs Brown, and you can get a signed copy before it's anywhere else. And these are hardbacks. Uh, and that's at jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. Or just type in, these are the Voyages 1970, Mark Cushman, and the internet will take you there. Um, and uh, the reason it's, it the reason volume two is not yet at Amazon, and volume three would follow maybe a month later, is because Amazon is not allowing any books to be sent to their fulfillment centers because they're reserving that space for, pandemic related items so it's a it's a it's a hard time to launch a book right in the middle of a pandemic
0: but the books are
1: printed they're printed and you can go to jacobs brown and you can get your copies before any bookstores have them or anything else and they'll be happy to send you a signed copy of the books right now
0: and where can your huge fans find you online
1: markcushman.com
0: are you are can, you, even, you
1: can even write system? to me through the website and tell me not to write books that are so big.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they're doing? <laughs> I don't. No,
1: the opposite. The opposite. We you know, it's funny. More. Well, one more question. When are you going to get around to writing about the next generation? Uh, it's on my agenda. Uh, I would like to do one more book wrapping up the original cast. I would like to do a book that covers Rathacon through Undiscovered Country. Five uh-huh. movies with with maybe 100, 120 pages on each movie. Um, and then I would like to do a three-book set covering Next Generation with two to three seasons in each volume.
2: Wow. And the, reason, and the a...
1: reason I could do two to three seasons in each volume, where the original series is only one season in each volume, is the original series was first. Yeah, Creating everything. Yes,
0: everything, and
1: there was all that conflict with the network and the censorship and everything else. Mm-hmm. Next generation wasn't as dramatic of a story because the groundwork had been broken, yeah. but it will still be by three volumes. It'll still be a generous examination of the story of of next generation.
0: Well, that is, some and, I, and
1: I, I'm kind of nervous about that because I'm sure <laughs> there's some memos in there about me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. I wish continue talking. There's just so much more we can we can go over. I, I wish you all the best with your books. And uh, great. Yeah,
1: when three comes out, maybe we'll talk then. You yeah. bet. Okay. If 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 I like your review, West, <laughs> <laughs> I would not worry about that.